The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., or 12 p.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There's a dynamic when you get married that changes, because right before you get married, there, you're like saying, man, I can't believe I've found this person. I, I, I'm just so compatible with them. I didn't know there was someone else in this world who was exactly like me. We have so many similarities. It's unbelievable. I mean, do you like ice cream? I like ice cream too. What are the chances of that? That's amazing. Okay, so before, right before you get married, I mean, you're just like, this is, the, this is the exact, exactly like me. And then you get married, and about five minutes later you've realized the person you've married is could not be more different than you. There's no one like that in the world that's as different as you, okay? Some of you, the way you handle a toothpaste tube, okay, you just squeeze it in the middle like a caveman, okay? It's like a gorilla operating that toothpaste tube. And you've got this mangled toothpaste tube. I mean, who does that? And others of you are saying, I can't believe that. And some of you others, you say, this is how you operate a toothpaste tube. You lay it down on the counter, you take the toothbrush, you turn it sideways, and then you scoot all the toothpaste to the front. Anyone does operate like that with your toothpaste? Some of you? Some of you proudly do that. <laughs> Start a group together or something, all right, on Facebook. Anyway, and you're like, I mean, look at this mangled toothpaste tube. That's wasting so much toothpaste. I mean, it's just not even good stewardship to handle a toothpaste tube like that. All right, and so we, we find, you know, these differences. But the idea of marriage is along the way, you know, you, you have, yes, there's two people that God has brought together with all these differences, but there's a higher, there's something more important than all those other things. It's this calling to this incredible thing called marriage and this unity, this higher level unity that's more important than all of those things that holds you together and keeps you moving forward. That idea is true in, in the whole spectrum of relationships. So that, talking about marriage, I mean, that's like the most intimate human relationship we have. But all the way on the other like, extreme, okay, you have like a complete stranger that you've never met, okay? And, and it operates the same with this person as well. So I want you to imagine you're at a sporting event. And you've got your buddy next to you, and you've got some people in front of you you don't know. You don't know these people. You don't know the people behind you. They're strangers. If you were to walk by them at the grocery store, you probably wouldn't even make eye contact with them, okay? They're maybe so dissimilar to you in in all the areas of your life, but you're sitting next to them, and you're at this sporting event, and then, like, your team shows this come-from-behind win, and you're hugging the person, okay, right? You're high-fiving strangers. You're that person that doesn't even look at people and, you know, when you're going on, but you're high-fiving, you're hugging them. All right, why? Because there might be, you might have nothing in common with this person except what's happening in this moment, okay? So there's this higher level of unity. Like there's something that takes you out of all of those other differences and there's this higher level that connects you, um, that connects you in an otherwise environment that you wouldn't be connected, Okay, this is important in our relationships in all different kinds of ways. But especially in the passage and in the encounter we're going to look at, if someone's encounter with Jesus, it's important specifically to the relationships in this room. Okay, so I want to ask you this question. You may be 
this may be your first time ever in church. You may not be a church person. You say, like, this is my first time in church, or this is my first time back at church in a long time. And maybe you've thought this before, or maybe you've just heard someone think this before. You've said, you know, I, I, I love God and I believe in Jesus. It's just the church part or the church people that I could do without. You ever heard someone say something like that? If I could just leave out the church part or the church people, man, I, I, it's, 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 I love God and Jesus. It's just the church part. Okay, and you know what? Honestly, a lot of us could probably understand what would, what would make you come to that conclusion. On the other extreme, there's some of you that are saying, look, I am a long time, grew up in church. Um, I've been in church for decades. But along the way in church, I have had my fair share of hurt. And I've had broken, hurting relationships. And I don't know how to handle that. I don't know, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Do I just pick up and go to another church? Do I leave? And, I, and maybe you've even found yourself in a pattern where I was here for a little while, then I got hurt. Then I'm here for a little while and I got hurt. And I was here for a little while and then I got hurt. I don't know how to handle this with these broken relationships. And when it comes to church, it's so intensely relational that this is a subject we have got to wrestle with, whether it's your first time in church or you're someone you've been in church all your life. This is something that we've got to talk about. And this passage right here in the book of Matthew is going to speak into this, and I think in, in a powerful way for our own lives and for our church. We're looking at Matthew chapter 9. We're looking at verse 9. Now, let me give you a little background here. Matthew is one of the, what we call the Gospels. There are four books in the New Testament. The four books that begin the New Testament, we call them Gospels. They're biographies of the life of Jesus, especially his ministry. And they're written, the four of them are, are written by these guys, and they're, they're named for the people who wrote them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this one that we're reading is by Matthew, this little section, but what makes this section so interesting is Matthew is writing about his own personal encounter with Jesus. This is the moment when Matthew gets called to be a disciple of Jesus, and it's important to remember the author's telling us about himself in this passage. It makes it a little bit more interesting than it already is. Look at Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Let's look at this together. As Jesus passed on from there, where's there? He's in this town of Capernaum. He just had another encounter with someone and he's continued on. He says, he saw a man called Matthew, he's talking about himself, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So here's what's going on. Here's like kind of the basic Beginning part of the story, Jesus is walking through Capernaum. He sees a tax booth. There was a very famous trade route that went right outside of Capernaum, and so it's not an uncommon place to find a tax booth. And there's a man sitting at the tax booth. And you say, okay, is the man paying his taxes? Well, no, Matthew is kind of saying this delicately. Matthew is the tax collector. He runs the tax booth. Jesus walks by, sees Matthew, this tax collector. Now, the fact that he's a tax collector is a very important part of this story. Now, as we've been going through this series, um, this road trip series, this is not the first tax collector we've come across. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' encounter with another tax collector named Zacchaeus. And as we were studying that story a couple weeks ago, Pastor Matt was telling us why the fact that he's a tax collector is so important. Tax collectors were notorious 
They're notorious because here's how the taxes work. They would collect taxes and then how they would get paid is they would charge a little more and they would take everything off the top and there was not a very good governor on how much more they could take. So sometimes they'd take a lot more so that they could become wealthy. And so the, the word tax collector, they, they considered all these people to be basically crooked. And so you even just say the word tax collector and it's kind of notorious. For example, in our culture, we have another occupation that has kind of a notorious stigma to it, okay? You ever heard someone say, man, that person's like a used car salesman? You've heard that before? Now, if you're here and you are a used car salesman, okay, we love you. We love you. We don't think that about used car salesmen, okay? Just saying some people do, all right? This is, it's kind of like that for tax collectors, but worse, they are notorious tax collectors. And for this story, there's another dimension that we've got to add into this to appreciate this story. There's another dimension why they're so notorious, because they're collecting taxes, but they're collecting taxes for Rome. Rome is the occupying army, the, the empire that controls Israel. Okay, they're collecting taxes for them. And to appreciate why this is such a big deal, you've got to know the political undercurrent right now in Israel is very polarized. There's two very strong, very opposed ideology in Israel right now. One is those that would be like a tax collector. And here's what they believe. They say, look, okay, Rome is here, yes, they, they obviously they've got one of the greatest armies probably in history, they are here, there's nothing we're going to do about that, maybe we work with them, partner with them, and it will bring wealth and success to our country, like what's the big deal, just embrace it, and so you've got people like tax collectors who are working for the Roman Empire. On the absolute other extreme... You have this growing movement over the last couple decades. This is like the, the mid, early to mid-30s AD that this is happening. And in the beginning part of that first century, over the last couple decades, there's been these growing revolutionaries that are so zealous for their national pride that they believe God wants them to violently overthrow Rome. They're so zealous that they're saying Rome is just like, if we go back into the Old Testament, it's just like when the Philistines had, were oppressing us and God raised up a judge and we, and we miraculously fought them off. Or the Midianites, remember when the Midianites and they fought them off. God is just waiting for us to have the faith to rise up and fight off the Romans. And even though that's unbelievable odds against us, God is waiting for us to have the faith to overthrow Rome. Rome is the enemy, and by letting them be here, we are disobedient to God. Okay, so you can see how that group, these people who are so zealous, in fact, in a couple more decades, in the mid to late 60s, they would actually officially form a party called the Zealots. And they would lead Israel to actually attempt a violent overthrow against Rome and it would go terribly wrong. In um, the late 60s, 70 AD, Jerusalem would be conquered, just sacked, destroyed, and the temple that Ezra built in the time of Nehemiah hundreds of years earlier would be absolutely destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. So these zealots, you can see how they, a zealot would think that a tax collector is a sellout. They're a, maybe even a traitor, Okay, And in the middle of these two strong ideologies, there's a very practical issue on a popular level that was a huge debate at the time. 
Should we even pay taxes to Rome? Like if we pay taxes, is that a sign to God that we don't have faith in him that he's going to help us overthrow Rome? Like are we selling out just by paying taxes to Caesar? In fact, you may remember there's a story where they try to put Jesus on the spot with that question. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Do you remember that? And Jesus' response is absolutely profound, but that's another sermon for another day. It all came down to this popular issue, should we even pay taxes to Caesar? So now you have a tax collector. I mean, he like embodies this extreme pole. Someone who's considered crooked, a traitor, a sellout, and Jesus is walking by his booth. He says, you know, you'd make a good disciple. Why don't you come follow me? If you're reading this, you're like, whoa, that's not what I expected. The scene closes, and then it opens up with verse 10. uh, Excuse me. Yes, verse 10. Look at this. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. All right, so the scene opens up again, and Jesus is reclining at this table. Now, this is actually how they would eat in this part of the world at this time. The tables were very low to the ground, so they're actually literally reclining. And it says Jesus is at the house. Now, what's interesting is this story is in three of the biographies of Jesus. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew doesn't tell us what house or whose house. And that's interesting because Mark and Luke tell us it's Matthew's house. I don't know if Matthew's feeling a little uncomfortable even telling this story or if he's trying to be modest, but Mark tells us it's Matthew's house. Luke tells us a little step further. Matthew throws a party for Jesus at his house. And Jesus sitting at his house. So here's what this means. The people who are sitting with Jesus, it's because of Matthew's party. They're the people Matthew invited. They're his friends. And you get to it, it says, okay, Jesus reclining. He's at Matthew's house at Matthew's party. And then the Bible says, behold. Now this is, you're reading your Bible. This is a word you're going to want to know what to do with. Behold is the writer's way of saying, okay, time out. You really have to see this. Like you need to check this out because this is crazy. It says Jesus is sitting at the table. And then he's, and Matthew's saying, and check this out. Sitting with Jesus and his disciples are tax collectors and sinners. Now here's what I find amusing. That's Matthew's description of his own friends. Okay, he's saying, trust me, they're sinners. Okay, I know these people. Right? And I don't even tell you what they do, just they're sinners, okay? He doesn't, this is not like a couple years later, this is not a couple months later, Matthew's cleaned up his life and, and they, he wants to throw a nice party for Jesus and he wants some of his friends that are lost to come. I mean, this is raw. I mean, this is like maybe later that day or later that week or a couple weeks. I mean, he's still figuring things out. This is probably a pretty rough crowd. He's probably pulling his one tax collector friend and says, dude, just remember when you're telling your jokes, he's a rabbi, okay? When he's going to be here, could you just... Try and keep it under control, okay? This is a pretty raw group that are sitting around. You've got all these tax collectors and sinners. They're probably partying like they always party. And who's there? You've got Jesus and probably all of his disciples who feel really uncomfortable. Bartholomew got cornered in some awkward conversation over by the punch bowl. He doesn't know what to, how to handle, okay? 
I want you to envision, this is probably kind of a rough thing. This is not a cleaned up party. And there's Jesus. Just put yourself in there with Jesus. It's not where you expect Jesus to hang out. If we're honest, we probably would have expected Jesus to find, hey man, um, I'll just stop by for a second and hang out and, and, and say hi, but I, I'm not going to stay long because I just don't want people to get the wrong impression. That's not what Jesus does. He's reclining at the table eating with these people. If we're reading this sensitively, we're probably a little uncomfortable. But if you're an original recipient of Matthew's letter, if you're a Jew at the time that this story takes place, you are very uncomfortable. Because who they ate with was very important. There's a concept they called table fellowship. And if you remember, uh, at that time period, the Jewish people, they had dietary restrictions. They, they, had, they ate kosher. And so there are certain things that they were going to eat. So you would never eat with a Gentile or someone who didn't have the same standards that you did because you didn't, don't want to become unclean and disobey God. So you, you wouldn't even just go to someone's house that's a Gentile that's not going to eat according to your dietary restrictions, because their utensils that they're using to touch unclean food, if they touch your food, your food is now unclean. So they would never even eat with a Gentile or someone who is not at the same standard of following the law that they were. So Jesus eating with these people is probably going to look like, to the other people in Capernaum, it's probably going to feel like he's endorsing these people. All right, now let's see what happens next because it gets interesting. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, so the Pharisees, they see this. Now, the problem is we, the Pharisees are always the bad guys, right? I mean, we know they're always going to say the wrong thing. And so our temptation is to read what they say slanted. Like, we want to read it like, and then the Pharisees came up and say, why is he eating with people like that? Okay, we want to read it like that. But did you notice something? They used the same words Matthew used. Now remember, Matthew is actually the Matthew talked about. Matthew is in the crowd that the Pharisees are sliding. He's at the table when the Pharisees ask this question. But it's Matthew that calls them tax collectors and sinners. And then the way that Matthew's telling this true story is he's, the Pharisees just simply are using the words he used. In fact, the Pharisees are asking a fair question. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? And it's almost like Matthew is making the Pharisees of all people ask the question the reader is thinking. Do you see that? Our question is in the mouths of the Pharisees. They ask the disciples, but Jesus doesn't give the disciples an opportunity to to answer for him. He answers the question. And he says a couple things. One thing is he says, well, the well have no need for a physician, the sick do. And at the end, he says, I didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. 
And if that's all he said, it seems like he might be saying, look guys, I thought it would be pretty obvious while I'm eating with these people. They need me. They're sinners. The righteous don't need me. I mean, if that's all he said, it kind of looks like he's saying, look, I know Pharisees, you guys are like the holy rollers. You are the super righteous people. You don't need time with me. They need time with me. It kind of seems like he's, he's putting them in that, those two camps. Pharisees equal righteous. These people equal sinners. But there's a phrase right in the middle that changes the whole complexion of that. He says, the well have no need for a physician, but the sick do. And he says, how about this? Um, you probably should go learn what this means. And then he quotes a scripture, which, remember, he's saying this to Pharisees who spend their entire lives studying scripture. You see, that's pretty sassy. He says, here's an idea. I don't know if you've ever read the Bible before, but I got a passage you might want to read. Maybe you've never heard this before because it sounds like you don't, you've never learned it. You might want to go study this and figure out what this means. He says, let me remind you of a little passage in Hosea where God says, I desire love and mercy and grace. I desire those things and not your empty sacrifices. He says, I'm here for the sinners, not for the righteous. He's essentially just said to the Pharisees, God doesn't care about your empty religious rituals. They're nothing. They're empty if in your heart is not love and mercy and grace. If you don't have that, if you're standing back without any grace or mercy towards someone else, it's clear that your religion is empty. Now, let me ask you this question. Does it seem like Jesus is putting Pharisees in the camp of those who are truly righteous? No. What he just said is, in in the way that's so brilliant and only Jesus could do, is he says, why am I sitting with these people? Well, sinners sinners are desperate for me. Sinners need me, not the righteous. And by the way, the fact that you responded that way and you're asking that question, Pharisees, tell me that you don't have grace, which means that all the religion that you do is just empty. All your religious activities are just empty. And so that you're a sinner too. Let me pull out a chair. You see what I mean, do you see what's happening here? This is really amazing. He's saying, both of you are lost. You're lost in your rebellion. You're lost, Pharisees, in your self-righteousness. Well, how is someone who's self-righteous lost? It's because they're looking at their own righteousness, and it's like they're essentially saying, Jesus, why are you eating with them? Eat at our table. They don't deserve you, but because I think right, because I believe right, because I act right, right, I'm kind of expecting you to be at my table, not that table. Like if I'm at the position to say they don't deserve you, Jesus, I think I, that I do deserve Jesus. See, there's a dynamic that they don't realize. They think they deserve Jesus. They're not desperate for Jesus. And what's ironic about this two different groups of lost people are who, the ones, who are the ones that are actually getting Jesus? It's at least the sinners who know they're sinners. And the hardest part about these Pharisees is they don't believe that they need Jesus as evidenced by their heart. See, here's something. If I realize I am desperate for Jesus, if I realize that I I need His grace, then by definition, I will necessarily, the outflow of that, if I realize that I am desperate and undeserving of the grace of God, I will have grace and mercy on someone else. I'll say, yeah, that person doesn't deserve to eat with Jesus, and I certainly don't deserve to eat with Jesus. 
the evidence of whether it's really in my heart, if all the religious activity, all the, the prayers are going to church or whatever it is, the evidence of whether that's legitimate in my heart is whether I have grace and mercy towards other people. But if I'm standing back self-righteous and judgmental saying, you don't deserve to be around Jesus like I do, then obviously I don't get it at all. I don't get how desperate I need Jesus. It's a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Zacchaeus story. We learned about how we need to have relational generosity with the people in our lives as we, that we come across in our world. But in this passage, it helps us understand there's another place we have to have that same kind of attitude to. Because let's pose the Pharisee's question to us. Who does your teacher eat with? Who's your Savior? Who does your Jesus? Who is he at the table with? See, there's another environment we've got to think through this. It's having that kind of mercy and compassion to our relationships in this room. If we fast forwarded in the, um, into Matthew, to the next chapter, Matthew uh, chapter 10, just a few sections later, Matthew gives the list of all the, the, the 12 men that became his official disciples, his apostles. I want to just look at this list. Go ahead and bring it up, Matthew 10, starting in verse 2. Here's the list, okay? Some of these names you'll recognize. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. Kind of unexpected. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. And Simon, the who? Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Do you realize who sits at the table with Jesus? Do you realize the two groups you have represented in his disciples? You've got a tax collector and a zealot. You could not have farther ideological poles from each other. In fact, I wonder if that's why when Matthew gives the list, he puts like Simon the Zealot right at the end. He's like, I can barely even write his name. He makes me so mad. He's going at the end. All right, Judas should probably go at the end. All right, we'll put him last. Okay? These guys are, is, I mean, you could not have farther poles. But what's happening? Who's, who is at the table with Jesus? You have people that are so different, but there's something, there's a higher level call. There's something that's, that is a higher dimension that's happened that has brought them unity that makes them look past all of their differences. See, there, when our world tries to find peace, here's what it does. It does one of two extremes. It says on one hand, to find peace, everyone needs to just, if everyone just thought like I did, then everyone would get along. And so I try and convert people to all of my little ideologies and all the secondary things that are so important to me, and I dig in in what I believe. But the other extreme, to try and find unity and peace, is to say, you know what, no, what we need to all believe, just need to dial it back, not be so extreme, and we have to just feel and believe less strongly what we believe and then we'll be able to get along. Those are our two options. But the gospel gives something different. And only the gospel does this. 
See, when someone like a Matthew and someone like Simon the Zealot, they find Jesus. Jesus dislodges any other ideology that was first on the throne, and he becomes primary. And so anything else becomes secondary. Jesus is primary. Everything else is secondary. And so I find other people that also have Jesus primary, and I can be unified with him around the table. Do you realize, church, what that's going to look like in this room? There's going to be people, some of you are tax collectors and some of you are zealots and we're going to come around the table together. Why? Because there's something powerful and beautiful that can only happen with Jesus. There are things that otherwise would be primary and would be the most important thing, but Jesus has dethroned those things. They're secondary. I no longer see that thing, that belief, that ideology, that doctrine. I no longer see that as the hope of the world. I realize there is one hope of the world and his name is Jesus Christ. And when I find other people that have that same primary belief, I find unity. In a few minutes, we're going to come together and we're going to take communion in a few minutes. And here's what's so powerful about this moment. This is the the symbol of the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of of when he died on the cross for our sins, and we're proclaiming that. But here's what's so powerful about this. Zealots, you're going to be taking communion next to tax collectors. Can I give you an example? There are some of you that are so, like, believe so strongly about things like health issues. Like, man, you are just so committed to your body as a steward. And man, when you see someone drinking like a Diet Coke, you're like, that is pure poison. I've got to save them, okay, and rip it out of their hands, okay? I mean, you just feel strong. You're on a mission, okay? There's others of you who are saying, you know what? Uh, You know, the Bible says, you know, everything is permissible. We just give thanks to God. And so you are going to go to McDonald's on your way home. You're going to get a bucket of Coke, okay? And you're going to hold it up to God and thank him as you down it in your mouth, okay? You're going to take communion together this morning. There's some of you that are really passionate about how you've chosen to educate your kids. It's not just like, hey, this is best for my family. Like, you believe this is the best. And some of you, you're like, look, I want my kids to be out in the world and get exposed to the things they're going to face through in the world. And I want to have honest conversations. I put my kids in the public school system. Others say, no, I believe it's got to be the Christian school system. And others say, no, I've homeschooled my kids and I, I believe that is the best route to go. And all of you believe those things so strongly. That belief of educating your children has been dethroned, though. And Jesus is on the throne. And so zealots... And tax collectors and the issue of education, you're going to be taking communion together. Can I turn the knife a little bit more? Republicans? (laughs) Democrats? There is no other place in the world where you two are going to come together with such unbelievable unity over the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is something that can only happen in the church 
of Jesus Christ, and that is a powerful thing, you're going to be taking communion together. Can we take it one step further? There may be someone in here who's deeply wounded you and has hurt you, and you haven't forgiven them. You're replaying, it's the person, I'm talking, and I know there's a lot of people that have heard us, but I'm talking about a brother or sister, someone at West Pines, your church. And when you see them, you're replaying over in your mind their sins against you. The fact that you're holding their record of wrongs shows that you haven't forgiven them. You're going to be taking communion at the same table. So before we have the audacity to proclaim the Lord's death on our behalf we ha- and, and, and express the forgiveness, the unbelievable forgiveness we've received, it's time to draw a line and decide if we're going to forgive that person. Moments before Jesus was arrested and then crucified, he looks up to heaven and he prayed this. He said, God, make them unified. Make them one like we're one. In just a minute, we're going to take communion together. Here's what it's going to look like. We're going to give you an opportunity. There's tables in the front and tables in the back. You can go either direction. You're going to be invited to come to these two aisles. Some of you are going to come forward. Some of you are going to go to the back, and you're going to take a cup for the juice and a piece of the, of the bread, and you're going to take it and then go back to your seat, and we're going to close in a song. This is proclaiming that Jesus' sacrifice has washed away your sins. If you're not ready to make that proclamation, you're like, look, I'm not really sure where I stand with Jesus or what I believe. That's okay. Just, I would encourage you to hold off this morning because this is a proclamation of that. And some of you may say, look, I am ready to actually to make that proclamation for the first time this morning. And if, if that's you, then when you come up here, you're going to see two different t- types of cups. There's a plastic cup. That's for most of us. But there's a special cup for those of you who are saying, today is my first time. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. And if that's you, take a moment and and take that cup as a commemoration that this is the morning that you put your faith in Jesus. We've got to take a second and we've got to, before we take this meal and have the audacity to proclaim God's forgiveness for us, we've got to take a second and make our hearts right. Would you bow your heads before the Lord today and have a quiet moment before God? Is there a brother or sister that you haven't forgiven yet? Today's the day. You've been forgiven much. It's time to say, I'm no longer going to hold these records against them, and I'm going to begin that process of forgiveness. And in your quiet moment, as that, the Holy Spirit's bringing that name or those names to your mind, and you say, look, they may hurt me again, but I've been forgiven so much, how could I not forgive? Today, you're just drawing a line in the sand and say, God, I forgive them, help me. Help my heart to forgive. Are you here today? And if you're honest, you're a Pharisee when it comes to someone who has a different ideology than you. You look down on that person because they believe a secondary issue. I mean, everything is second after Jesus. And you look at that person, you say, how could you even be call yourself a Christian? How could you be at the table of Jesus? And maybe you need to say, look, I'm making this issue my primary issue. Again, I've allowed it to get back on the throne, but I need to have grace. I need to have grace for people. Like I need grace. Confess that this morning.
because there's an, a beautiful thing that's about to take place around the table that Jesus set. Jesus, we ask that you would be pleased with this humble offering that we make to you where in unity we proclaim your broken body and shed blood how you saved us. Thank you for your grace we are so desperate for. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out our other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.